Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Hello, and welcome to the Brain People podcast. My name is Jonathan Edens. I'm a psychiatric PA, and today I am joined by uh, one of our most esteemed co-hosts, <laughs> Dr. Daniel Vinas, and I'm a psychiatrist. And so today, thank you for joining us. We have a excellent conversation uh, ahead of you, a very interesting one that I don't think is, is talked about maybe as much as what it should be. And we're talking about depression, which is not uncommon on this podcast. We talk about it a lot, but specifically today, we're going to be talking about the different subtypes of depression and some of the subtypes you may, ha- you may be thinking where we're going with this, but I, you might be surprised. A lot of this information is not something that is very, uh, commonly talked about in, in psychiatry. And so before we jump into it, Dr. Barnes, let's actually talk a little bit about why that might be any, any thoughts. Well, one of the main reasons probably is because, you know, when we're coding things uh, as far as um, what we send off to insurances for reimbursement, et cetera, we're using actually ICD-10 codes, which stands for the International Classification of of Diseases. And so we're using these ICD-10 codes and they actually don't have all of the subtypes of depressions as separate codes, but these codes are actually part of the DSM-5, which is the psychiatric Bible, if you will, for diagnosing things. And so uh, because a lot of our coding and diagnosis of, of disorders is really driven by you know getting reimbursement from insurances, then we're going to focus on just the major depression or major depression with psychosis, which are really the big differentiating uh, or subtypes, if you will, um, in the ICD-10. So essentially they just, the ICD-10 just kind of boils down everything into sort of one umbrella term, if you will, or two umbrella terms. And and so there's not really a whole lot of incentive for us to really dive down into the the individual subtypes, even though the DSM does that essentially. Exactly. Um, but you know, I think there is some real value actually to differentiating this because there are some, uh, treatment nuances and I think, you know, knowledge is power. And so it, it's helpful to understand, uh, what we're dealing with so that we can really address, uh, the individual, um, in a more holistic way, in a way that will really, um, point out and, target those things that they're really struggling with rather than just being like, okay, it's depression. And we're just going to do the same old thing that we do for everyone that has depression. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these, some of the nuances that you're referring to, uh, as we'll, we'll talk about, you know, in a, in a few minutes, uh, they easily get, uh, they easily get misdiagnosed mm-hmm. with other conditions that then necessitate different types of treatment. Whereas, you know, if it is predominantly a major depressive disorder, you're going to use a different type of treatment rather than say somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. That's right. That's right. And that's part of the confusion here is because there is sometimes overlap with some of these symptoms, not just with depression, but like we're going to talk about depression with psychosis, for example, you know, someone can have psychosis, but that psychotic symptoms, that doesn't mean that they have schizophrenia. So we have to be careful. Like why do they have psychotic symptoms? So let's actually jump into that first one. So the first subtype, and there are there are eight that we're going to go through today, um, but the first subtype of major depressive 
depression is uh, MDD with psychotic features. So before we talk about that specifically, let's just mention, you know, major depressive disorder we have talked about fairly extensively in other podcasts. And so if you're looking for what a definition is of uh, major depressive disorder, what the criteria are, then we um, want, you know, maybe you should go listen to that podcast first if you haven't before this one. But let's talk about uh, what MDD with psychotic features uh, presents with. Yeah. So basically it meets the criteria for a major depressive episode, but then on top of that, you have symptoms of psychosis. And when we're talking about psychosis, we're talking about symptoms that are really out, out, out of touch with reality, so to speak. So that can include things like paranoia. It can be a delusion, like feeling like the CIA is tracking you or out to get you. Now, I guess, I guess that could be true, but <laughs> you know, if it's clearly not true, then it would be a paranoid delusion. Uh, it can include voices. Sometimes people have the sense that people are talking to them <clears throat> when they're not, or they hear conversations in their head, or it can even include uh, visual hallucinations and that sort of thing. Yeah. Even sensations and smells, right? Mm -hmm. Those can be, uh, those can be hallucinations as well. Um, now, you know, typically those types of things may not necessitate treatment, but most commonly we're talking about hearing or seeing things that aren't necessarily there or believing sort of fixed false beliefs that are actually causing you, you know, significant um, dysfunction. Yeah. And I'd say in my experience, when I'm thinking about major depression with psychosis, those are really oftentimes some of the most severe cases. And uh, in my experience, it often is in cases where people have been depressed for quite some time. And a lot of times uh, the individual is not always forthcoming uh, with that. And that part of that can be the paranoia actually. And so, you know, these symptoms, even if you go through and you ask the individual, like, are you having these symptoms? Sometimes they're hesitant to, to share because they might feel like, oh, you know, they're going to think I'm crazy or, um, they're, they're, you know, maybe the doctor's part of the scheme against me. Mm -hmm. And so there, because of the paranoia, there could be the hesitancy. So sometimes we have to really use a lot more observation when diagnosing this or talking with family. I don't know if you've had that experience yourself. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think another thing to consider is, you know, generally speaking, we're doing most of our diagnosing, like in the first appointment. And a lot of times, especially if you're really, if there's a strong sort of internal self-stigma with having hallucinations or delusions, like you don't necessarily want to convey everything, especially something like that to somebody you just met, you know, mm -hmm. 30 minutes ago. Right. And so, so many times I've had patients that have, uh, that have actually, you know, reported that over time when they actually started to uh, trust me a little bit more. So that, that is something though, that I do ask regularly. And, and I've had patients that have told me no up front, but then it ended up, you know, later on kind of admitting like, Hey, this is actually something I'm dealing with. They just were embarrassed to say so. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so I think it's important to continue to assess over the time that you're treating somebody and also just to observe too. Cause sometimes we get this mentality of like, okay, this is definitely not psychotic features cause they haven't said anything, but then we have to kind of keep our antenna up and say, okay, you know, is there kind of some odd sort of uh, behavior that could tell me or some symptoms that don't quite meet, um, just, uh, meet what I thought was depression without psychotic features, or maybe they're really not responding to the treatment uh, that you would expect for 
non-psychotic features. One one kind of unique thing about the ICD-10 is it it categorizes you know major depression into mild, moderate, and severe. And when it comes to with psychotic features, it automatically gives you that severe category, right? There's mm-hmm. there's nothing else that we can do other than mark it as major depression, severe with psychosis. So it just goes to show that if you have psychotic features, uh, it's generally considered to be a you know this is something we really need to address as quickly as possible because you you know many patients can take a significant turn for the worst. Sometimes these these uh, these hallucinations um, might be like, for example, telling them to do things that they really shouldn't be doing. Um, and so, so it, it's important to make sure that if you are having symptoms such as psychosis, psychosis uh, in, in conjunction with your major depression, that you really let your prescriber know reason. There's a couple reasons for that. Um, the first thing is that if, if you don't feel comfortable sharing that with them, um, because you don't feel like they're going to be empathic enough for you, then maybe you need to find a new prescriber. Right. Um, but sometimes you have to kind of test the waters first to, to even see whether or not it is, it is somebody that's going to be a good Mm -hmm. fit for you. Uh, the second thing is because of the severity and uh, usually we're going to use typically a different type of medication class. You want to touch on that? Yeah. So typically you're still going to use some kind of antidepressant, but you're also going to look at some kind of atypical antipsychotic medication uh, to try to specifically address those uh, psychotic symptoms. Now, one interesting factor is, again, of course, if you have psychotic symptoms, you, you want to look at, is this a psychotic disorder or is it from depression or from bipolar or something like that? And, you know, the key differentiating factor here is that the mood disorder came first and that then grew into, you know, the, the depression with the psychosis versus like a schizophrenic type picture, you're going to have more of the hallucinations and delusions. Um, and then usually after that, uh, more of the secondary depression as kind of a, a, a secondary element, uh, here, the mood disorder is primary. So, so what you're saying is basically if you, uh, if you're MDD with psychotic features, you will only ever have psychosis during a major depressive Exactly, episode. yeah, yeah. But to your original question, yes, we want to not only use antidepressants, uh, but also uh, some kind of antipsychotic medication. So let's move on to the next subtype. The second subtype we're going to discuss is uh, major depressive disorder with anxious distress. So uh, what is what is this uh, type of subtype? Like what is, what is the definition of it, Dr. Binus? Well, I mean, I think the basic thing is that you have the depression, but there's a lot of anxiety along with it. And typically what I've noticed is people that have that anxious dispre- distress are often have what we call psychomotor agitation where they have a hard time, like even sitting still and they just feel restless, keyed up on edge, uncomfortable in their skin. Sometimes even like their skin is crawling and they're just very uncomfortable. And so in this situation, you not only want to address the depression, but you want to make sure you're doing it in a way that is also addressing the anxiety. So this is actually one of the most common subtypes and it's estimated that up to 75% of patients uh, with depression do meet criteria for anxious distress. Now the criteria specifically, according to the, the DSM-5, uh, kind of goes along with what Dr. Binus was saying, but it specifically says three of the following symptoms. So experiencing poor concentration due to worry, feeling tense, being persistently restless, feeling as if something bad will happen and feeling as if you are losing control. Now, the key difference with MDD with anxious distress is that these symptoms occur in conjunction with the major depressive episode and are not present when the patient is not depressed, Mm -hmm. right? So 
those symptoms that we described can sound a lot like generalized anxiety disorder, can sound a lot like panic disorder, can sound a lot like PTSD. So that's that's kind of the differentiating factor between those. Typically, if a patient has one of those other conditions, they're still going to be experiencing those anxiety symptoms to a significant degree, even when they're not depressed. Yeah, I think that's the key factor. And I've seen people that, you know, I've actually diagnosed an anxiety disorder and then, but then I realize when they're not depressed, they don't have anxiety. It really yeah. was completely the depression driving the anxiety. So, uh, it, it, this is an important, uh, subtype to identify, um, in part because patients with anxious distress, you know, will probably likely benefit from some additional anxiety medication. Uh, however, they also tend to have higher rates of suicidal ideation than some of the other subtypes. And so it's important to, to be aware of that fact. And a lot of times when you have that ag agitated sort of energetic response with the depression, you know, high energy and suicidal ideation don't tend to go, uh, don't tend to be a, a good mix. No, it can actually be very dangerous. And so it's important to address both of those things. And there are lifestyle things that can really help significantly too. Like, you know, trying to channel some of that anxious energy into exercise can be a great way to actually uh, really handle that sort of depression. And, um, and then of course, being really careful with caffeine intake because caffeine can obviously escalate anxiety, cause more agitation, and even sugar uh, can be a big problem too. So moving on to the next subtype, uh, major depressive disorder with melancholia. Now, you know, m some people have probably heard the term melancholia or melancholic, you know, especially if you took like a personality, personality test in high school, right? Sometimes that's kind of brought up, but what is it that we mean when we talk about major depression with melancholia, Dr. Minus? Yeah. So typically these are individuals who are going to have decreased appetite and also have um, early morning awakening. Um, so they can uh, often lose significant weight and, um, you know, it, it, it can potentially go either way with psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation. But um, I would say that uh, the early morning awakening and the decreased appetite are the hallmarks of this condition. Yeah, patients with this form tend to also be extremely despondent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's another form that we're going to talk about next, but uh, that that is, um, you know, in, at least in this case, it's somewhat the opposite. But patients with melancholia really don't uh, respond to external stimuli all like almost almost at all, right? And so they almost have no mood reacti reactivity. They tend to be extremely flat extremely blunted show very low interest or motivation and so they, yeah they could kind of like win the lottery and it would be like oh, okay great <laughs> uh, yeah yeah think think negatively about that huh um and so you know patients in this state do tend to have almost a complete absence of joy even if something like you said like winning the lottery something else that was really awesome um that would otherwise be very awesome for them doesn't end up uh, wouldn't end up making much of a difference in their mood. Now, it is it is considered by some that this is the most genetic based form of depression, and so you know, with that, it's it, you know what we take away from that is uh, while environmental and lifestyle habits can be helpful to an extent, we might you know definitely lean more towards you know medication and other treatments like uh, neurostimulation. Exactly. Yeah, and and. What's interesting is, uh, you know, once it, it's almost like these, these individuals can 
be very stuck. And that's why I do think oftentimes we need something to jumpstart uh, this type of depression. But once they start getting going and you get some momentum moving forward, a lot of these other interventions can be very helpful adjunctively, uh, the lifestyle and the therapy and all of this. But a lot of times they just feel so stuck. And, you know, as a clinician, sometimes we get frustrated. It's like, you know, we're trying to get you going here. But once we find a medication or neurostimulation to kind of get, then they're like, okay, more willing to engage. And then it starts to, to really uh, work together. So the, the next subtype, subtype number four is major depressive disorder with atypical features. So atypical, uh, I know it's kind of an odd, it's kind of an odd name, especially once we kind of just, uh, uh, talk about uh, what defines it, um, but in part, it was uh, termed this. I uh, was coined this name because it was uh, previously, or I should say, major depression was previously referred to as typical depression, and so they needed a name um, to to you know just in a sense distinguish it from you know what is what is classic, if mm-hmm. you will. So, so what makes patients with atypical features not classic? Well. Uh- it's kind of the opposite in some ways uh, to the melancholic uh, as far as they tend to actually overeat. So their appetite tends to be higher and uh, they tend to also oversleep. And uh, also as opposed to the melancholic type where pretty much nothing will situational will kind of lift their mood. The The individuals that have the atypical type, uh, oftentimes situational improvements, like they, you know, Get, win the lottery or <laughs> something else great happens yeah. as, as something really good happens then that can temporarily elevate their mood and improve things a common one that i hear is they go to say a social gathering mm-hmm. right and they tend to be you know somebody that enjoys social gatherings and so during that they completely forget about their depression and as soon as they get home it's like the weight sets back in again right mm-hmm. so they respond positively to that external stimuli but as soon as they get away from that and they're back with just in themselves um they're they're back into that that really deep pit, if you will. Absolutely. And it, interestingly enough, it, it does seem like this uh, subtype usually occurs in more of the younger uh, individuals and also has a higher association with uh, bipolar, developing bipolar disorder later on. Although, you know, that that's not always the case, but it does have a higher association. Just one other interesting sort of fun fact uh, with atypical features is that some patients, and this is not you know n- uh, necessary for the diagnosis of atypical features, but some patients do uh, experience like a heaviness in their arms and legs, uh, something that we call leaden paralysis, uh, but they only experience that during you know during the depressive episodes. So moving on to the fifth subtype of major depressive disorder, uh, this is um, major depression with catatonic features. So we've we've mentioned melancholia, right? Where we've now we're mentioning catatonic. These are some interesting interesting words, Doctor Binus. Uh, what is what does catatonia mean? Well, it's really has to do with um, the body um, movements or lack thereof oftentimes. And so, you know, individuals with catatonic uh, features can actually show signs of stupor, uh, little to no speech, and odd facial expressions, repetitious motions. Um, Sometimes they will settle on a specific body position and hold that for literally hours and even days sometimes. Uh, they will sometimes even mimic what others are saying or doing. Uh, so it's a very strange, odd 
behavior. I've actually um, only seen this uh, pretty rarely, um, but it is quite striking. You'll never forget it if you see a really kind of classic catatonic state. It's almost like they they can be frozen or like I said, the odd body expressions and, and this sort of thing. Yeah, it is. It is one of the most uh, interesting from sort of a clinical perspective, just because of its rarity and its uniqueness. Um, but, you know, it is something that you can easily go online, you can watch on YouTube. And there are uh, there are case reports where they actually show video footage of, of real people dealing with um, catatonia. Now, classically, we frequently see catatonia more commonly with like schizophrenia or manic states. But, you know, some some patients will experience catatonia even in amidst uh, you know a very severe depressive state, but but generally speaking, I, I will say you know many many patients are you know getting treatment before they get to that state. That that is true. Now one one very striking thing about catatonia is that sometimes it can actually be reversed very rapidly. I remember seeing one individual in the hospital when I was called to do a consult there, and uh, he had catatonia. Now this was catatonia from a different disorder, but still the treatment is going to be similar when they're in that acute catatonic state. Uh, we often give IV uh, benzodiazepines like lorazepam, Ativan. And so that's what we did, did for this individual. And it was very interesting. I mean, he had been in this one fixed body position for hours and he very quickly started responding and talking within mm. minutes of giving that IV out of hand. We had to give several uh, doses, but it was, it was very uh, dramatic to, to see the change. So uh, one, one thing just to uh, discuss is that, you know, extreme Kate, extreme states of catatonia, those are, as we said, very rarely seen um, and very obvious when we do see them typically. Right. But, but some patients can have very mild features of catatonia and because it's, it's not commonly discussed because people just don't have the the general sense of awareness. And maybe when you're in an appointment, you're not as you're, you're going to be more aware. And so you're less likely to exhibit certain symptoms, or if you're doing it all televisit, right, then the prescriber may not even be able to see, you know, those types of unusual body expressions. And so, so all that to say is that mild catatonic features do are, are probably more, uh, probably occur more than what we, you know, realize. It's a good point. We're just missing it. It's a good point. Uh, so the sixth subtype of major depression is that uh, with mixed features. So you know, mixed mixed features refers to a mood state in which certain signs or symptoms associated with depression and mania or hypomania are essentially mixed together. Hence, why we call it uh, the term mixed state. So you know, it takes a little bit of an understanding of what is hypomania or mania. So Dr. Binus, why don't you give us just like a quick quick overview? Yeah. So so basically. When someone has um, mania or hypomania, their thoughts are going to be sped up. Uh, so racing thoughts is a, a common symptom. Uh, elevated mood, typically speaking. Now, that doesn't always mean it's going to be an elevated good mood. Sometimes it can be agitated or even anxious. Mm. Um, more energy, insomnia. And, um, you know, in the case of hypomania, it's not as severe. So, so you're not going to be, it's not usually going to um, impair functioning as much. Um, the manic, that's where you really get in the, the severe state where people do things that they very much regret later on, like maybe spending a bunch of money, um, sleeping around with a lot of people. Um, but typically in either mania or hypomania, there is that impulsivity as well and just taking on more projects and, and that sort of thing. So those are, those are the typical features of uh, a manic state. Now, 
we do have a term, you know, mixed mixed mania that we associate with a bipolar patient. So when we're talking about major depression with mixed features, it's doesn't it, it doesn't quite meet criteria for a full hypomanic or manic episode. So, you know, some of those symptoms that Dr. Barnes described, they have the major depression and then those symptoms will be maybe relatively mild or they or they won't uh, last for an adequate duration or they just don't have enough symptoms to, to justify a, a, a full diagnosis. A full of bipolar. bipolar diagnosis, exactly. And that's why some clinicians actually do really argue that, you know, when you look at um, the mood disorder, it really is a spectrum, you know, and, and it's like, where do you draw that line? And, and in reality, that's, that's, that's probably the case, but that doesn't mean that everybody that has major depression has bipolar. It's just that, yeah, there is that spectrum. And once you get more in the middle, it's like, okay, you know, where do you draw that line? That's where we have the diagnostic criteria. But in reality, because these individuals do share some real symptoms of bipolar, we do need to start thinking about more mood stabilizing medication and things that we can do to help keep the mood stable along with treating the depression. Yeah. And, and one, you know, one consideration, uh, probably a lot of these patients that would be, you know, when, when appropriately diagnosed, given a diagnosis such as this, is that perhaps in time, especially if we're only using antidepressants, there may actually be a conversion into full-blown mania. And so using, using, as Dr. Bynes said, using kind of a mild mood stabilizer, perhaps in conjunction with an, with an antidepressant may be a, a very reasonable approach to Absolutely. mitigate that risk. And I think this is also another great place to really consider a lifestyle as well, because, uh, you know, they might do well with a mild mood stabilizer, but then you might be able to use actually the, the lifestyle, uh, interventions to really work with the depressive aspects. So you're you have less risk of sure. potentially going, uh, progressing into more of a full-blown bipolar episode. So moving on to the seventh t- subtype, this is major depression with seasonal onset. Now, this is uh, common, frequently referred to as SAD or SAD, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, and uh, many people are, are listening to this or are probably familiar with what this means. But Dr. Bynes, why don't you give us a, a definition of, of what uh, seasonal onset Means. So, so the basic thing there is that, you know, it's, it's like the winter blues, right? So when the, um, light, it becomes less, especially if you're living in more than in the Northern latitudes, uh, where you get less and less light, uh, during the winter months, then that's when the depression typically comes on. And a lot of people notice that even people that don't go into full blown depression, uh, they will notice that they're not quite as energetic or they need a little more sleep uh, in the winter months compared to the summer months. And a lot of that has to do with the circadian rhythm. So there is a normal kind of component of this, but for people that actually develop SAD, it's more of a severe um, element like where it really becomes uh, a problem with their day-to-day functioning. Yeah. So it, it, it will meet full-blown criteria for a major depressive disorder. However, there's just this consistency of seasonality to it. Now, Sorry. one thing we should, we should note, even though it's frequently called the winter blues is that sometimes it doesn't necessarily happen during the winter. I've actually had a couple patients where it's the reverse. And that's a good point. Yeah. And, and you know, we do have pretty hot uh, summers here in Sacramento. So that might have something to do with it. Um, but, but some people can actually have it in reverse where during the summer months, they're more prone to depression. Whereas in the winter months, it's not quite as bad. Yeah, that is a good point. And that, that in my experience is relatively rare, but it actually can happen. And I'm not sure that we have 
a great explanation for that, uh, but um, it, it can happen. So what's a simple sort of treatment adjunct that we typically use with these types of patients? Light therapy has actually been shown to often be very helpful. Uh, so doing a, a light box uh, intervention. So basically where uh, you use a light box for 20 to 30 minutes of either blue light or uh, more of a full spectrum light uh, that will actually help to shut down the melatonin secretion in your brain and to wake you up in the morning so that you're not dealing with the winter blues as much. So, you know, getting getting real sunlight is probably the best, at least in certain amounts, right? But light box therapy is a really good second place. And you can get these pretty inexpensively mm -hmm. offline, um, even these, you know, higher, higher, higher um, lux bulbs. Um, but frequently we also use just vitamin D supplementation as well, particularly if uh, you don't have those other options available. Uh, the eighth and final subtype of major depressive disorder that we're going to talk about today is that of peripartum onset. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the baby blues. So Dr. Binus, what is, uh, what are we talking about with this one? So basically, there's a lot of hormonal changes that happen uh, during pregnancy, um, both during the pregnancy and then after pregnancy. And so uh, a lot of women uh, change, experience changes in their mood uh, when they're going through pregnancy and then oftentimes, especially right after pregnancy. And, and so postpartum depression is the most common that we see when it comes to the peripartum sort of mood disorders. Yeah. So that just means after birth, right. after the birth of the child, right? It is, it is estimated that, uh, roughly seven to 10% of women will experience a full-blown major depre depression either during or shortly after their pregnancy. Now, you know, a lot of this may be because the, um, you know, the mother, uh, kind of gets this idea that she's going to be unable to properly care for herself or the child. And that can be, you know, that can, uh, create a lot of guilt, Right. Absolutely. And a lot of it is, is thought for, for most mothers to be again, that the drastic shift in hormones, like right after you give birth, your progesterone levels uh, drop drastically. And that's actually one of the reasons that they've come up with a synthetic uh, progesterone um, agonist and, and it's called Berxanolone and that can often help. Now that's unfortunately only given IV, but it can be quite helpful for postpartum depression. Um, otherwise we are typically looking at uh, antidepressants as well as lifestyle interventions. And, uh, actually one thing that can be very helpful is interpersonal psychotherapy. Um, one interesting note on this as well <clears throat> is that approximately 20% of women with peripartum, the peripartum subtype of depression also experience psychotic features. So that, uh, that occurs you know, frequently with the MDD with, with psychosis and that specific combination, uh, can be, you know, uh, can result in an extremely tragic outcome that, you know, some of us have probably heard about, you know, on the news when a mother, you know, suffocates her child. And a lot of times that's because she's hearing, she's hearing voices, she's seeing things, she's experiencing paranoia, and that can lead individuals to do something that's extremely drastic. So, um, you know, this, this specific subtype is also because of the potential dangers associated with the, uh, child and the mother not being, uh, adequately able to care for them. Um, you know, getting adequate treatment is, is imperative. It is very important. And I'm glad you brought that up because it can be dangerous. And of course there can be the homicidal ideation, but there can also be the suicidal ideation that goes along with this sense of like, yeah, being a very 
poor mother or whatever it might be. And so uh, it's really important that uh, mothers uh, get the help that they need and realize that there's no shame in reaching out for help. A lot of women, a lot of mothers struggle with this and there's help available and things can get a lot better and they will get a lot better with proper treatment. And I think that's a really good point to end on. And, you know, just to reiterate, there is no shame in any of these, you know, and in, in major depression as a diagnosis in and of itself or expressing any of these particular subtypes, you know, there are people out there that, you know, like ourselves that really want to help. And, um, and sometimes we just, you know, the more information that we know, the better we're going to be able to make those educated decisions about what treatment is best. So, you know, we hope that you enjoyed this discussion on the eight different subtypes of major depressive disorder. Uh, we hope that we are able to show you how different and complex uh, depressive episodes can be and the importance of seeking out an accurate diagnosis. Uh, you know, if um, we, we, we would like to believe that you probably learned something from this podcast today and, um, and you know, maybe it uh, will help to empower you to discuss you know, certain treatment options or to simply just be educated um, you know, about your own condition Uh, so that you can get the best treatment uh, available. Absolutely. If you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Jonathan Edens. And I'm Dr. Daniel Bynus. And you've been listening to The The Brain Brain People People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 